This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 11th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, I talk with news intern Kathleen O'Grady about a new push for replication and standardization in the field of ecology, using lessons from psychology's replication crisis. Also this week, I talk with researcher Andrew Stouffer about some good news for the declining Tasmanian devil. Now we have news intern Kathleen O'Grady. She wrote a story this week on efforts to improve the rigor of the field of ecology based on what's happened in psychology. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Can you give us a quick synopsis of what happened in the field of psychology? Things have been bubbling below the surface for a very long time in psychology, but... Things really started exploding in about 2012 when there was a very famous paper on precognition that failed to replicate. Since then, there have been other very famous findings that psychologists have not been able to replicate, especially when they do them with bigger sample sizes. And there's been this movement in psychology to drastically improve the robustness of their research with a whole lot of different measures. There is now a move within ecology to try and copy some of these tactics to try and beef up the quality of ecology research. Why might the field of ecology be having some of these same issues? What are some of the the red flags? They're very similar to the ones in psychology. One of the big things is small sample sizes, which essentially means that a lot of the results that you're seeing are very erratic. Either a small sample size could miss an effect that's rarely there, or it could find something that looks like an effect, but is actually just a spurious finding. It's just looking at noise and seeing something that isn't really there. There's very little replication going on in ecology right now. There was a study published last year that looked at nearly 40,000 ecology and evolutionary biology papers and only found 11 papers that reported a replication attempt. And of those, only four of them reported that the replication had been successful. They'd repeated the original results. And in a survey that was published in PLOS One, researchers found that nearly half of the 800 ecologists and evolutionary biologists who responded said that they sometimes presented unexpected findings as if they were confirmation of a hypothesis that they'd had all along. And around two-thirds of them said that sometimes they reported only the significant results from their study and left out the negative results. 
In response to some of these issues, a group of scientists are forming a society. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. It's the Society for Open, Reliable and Transparent Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. For short, it's SOTI. And it's inspired by a similar society in psychology. And their plan is to essentially help to connect ecologists who are interested in these issues and bring them together in a way that can kind of ignite collaborations and projects and kind of grassroots efforts to improve the quality of research in ecology. What are some of the basics? What, what can ecology take from the template set up by psychology? One of the big things is actually just bringing people together, because right now in ecology, there are a lot of people in different silos of subdisciplines and ecosystems who are working on different ways to improve research quality. Bringing all of these people together into one movement is one of the things that they've identified that psychology really has managed to get right. And they've managed to achieve a lot with that. But they can also look at things like collaborating across multiple labs so that all of these labs together can have access to much bigger samples than one lab can. So that's one way to get around the sample size issue. We talked a little bit about bigger sample sizes. Are there are other things that can be done. There are plenty of things that can be done, and it really depends on what exactly the problems are in a particular field of research. So beefing up the sample sizes is one thing, but also collaborations across different labs to try and standardize how something's done from one field site to the next is something that ecologists have been trying, and it's been yielding great results. Collaboration is a big part of this, but you can kind of also look at it from what's happening with the way this is published, the way people are reporting their data before you even try to fix how the science is being done in itself. You know, what can be done on the journal side? One of the first things that you can do is just make sure that researchers are communicating very clearly about what exactly it is that they did. Getting journals to encourage the use of checklists that make sure that researchers are reporting how big their sample size was, how they calculated how big that sample size should be, whether the people collecting data were blinded to the conditions of the different groups of subjects that they were studying. All of these things sometimes slip through the net and don't actually get published in the final paper. And that makes it very difficult to recreate the study or to understand how high quality the research was in the first place. Another thing that they can do, again, it's not really changing the practice in the field, is pre-registration. And this is basically saying, I'm going to do this project this way. How would that help? That helps in a few ways. One of them is just that if you pre-register a study, there's a record of that study being done. So that helps to guard against publication bias, where people go out and do studies and then the negative results get buried and you only see the positive results in the literature. If the studies are pre-registered ahead of time. You can see, oh, no results from that ever came out. I wonder what happened there. Another thing that they do is they help researchers to commit to a particular hypothesis ahead of time. So that helps them to avoid the temptation to come up with a hypothesis that fits their data after they've already seen the data. And it also helps them to commit to a particular data collection plan and data analysis plan ahead of time, which again guards against the temptation to cherry pick results and publish the ones that are most exciting and simplest and neatest. I have to say, though, that for someone going out into a marshland or to climb a mountain to find samples, things aren't always going to go the way you expect them to go. Does that work with pre-registration? 
field research definitely comes with a whole lot of challenges that don't appear when all you're doing is studying undergrads in a psychology lab, for sure. One of the things that's been suggested for pre-registration in ecology in particular is to try and just keep it as simple as humanly possible and just say, we're going to do X. Just setting out a published statement ahead of time saying what it is that you're planning to study without going into a lot of detail. Everybody accepts that some pre-registration details might need to be tweaked during the experiment or after the fact. As long as you report that, that's fine. Why is replication so important in ecology? It does seem like it's very difficult. It's going to be very challenging for certain settings. The problem, if nothing fails to replicate, is that you end up with no real information. If something happened once on a hillside 20 years ago and you can't find the same result anywhere else, you can't extract any general principles from that. And that really is what ecology, like other sciences, is trying to do. They're trying to understand the laws that govern the natural world. And so if you can't replicate something in any sense ever, that means that you can't extract any general principles from it. Some of this sounds shady, but in a different light, it looks like science. And in a lot of cases, it's how researchers are trained and they think that this is the right way to do research. So it's not that people are trying to game the system or trying to just get ahead at the cost of the robustness of the literature. People are trained to look at their data and try and come up with questions that they think the data can answer and then report the positive results. The real challenge is changing the culture so that that isn't the behavior that researchers are trained to do and then rewarded for doing. So kind of all along the way, training, publishing, study design, all of these things can come together to improve the field. Is that what happened in psychology? There has been a lot of progress in psychology. There are training resources for statistics that weren't available when the replication crisis broke. There are publishing formats like registered reports where you get your pre-registration peer-reviewed and then the journal commits to publishing whatever comes out of that research, no matter how boring it is. Pre-registration has had huge uptake. There are journals that give people badges for good behaviors, so pre-registration, open data, that kind of thing. But meta-researchers are still hard at work trying to understand what exactly the impact of all of these measures has been on the quality of the psychology literature as a whole. This seems like early days for ecology at this point to say whether or not it's going to work. I mean, in one way, ecologists have been working on these issues for a very long time. One great example is the Nutrient Network, which is a collaboration of researchers around the world who are getting data from different grasslands in exactly the same way. So that's dealing with these problems of generalizability, replication, sample size, and it's been around for a long time. But at the same time, there is this kind of new energy to try and take these tools from psychology and really increase the speed and the size of the movement within ecology. And I think sortie is really evidence of that. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Thank you. Kathleen O'Grady is a news intern for science. You can find a link to her story at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with researcher Andrew Storfer about a turnaround in the fate of Tasmanian devils. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week. 
from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. might have heard of the plight of the Tasmanian devil. These carnivorous marsupials have been afflicted with a transmissible facial tumor, a cancer that jumps from one devil to another when they bite each other in the face. Not as uncommon as you might think. And as a result, their populations have gone into steep decline. Despite these extreme population losses, the devils have been holding on and may even be turning a corner. Andrew Storfer and colleagues wrote about this potential turnaround in this week's science. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Let's start with the downfall of the devils, this facial tumor disease, DFTD. When did it arise and what has been its trend and its spread among the Tasmanian devils? The devil facial tumor disease, according to our new study, originated probably in the late 1980s. It was actually discovered in the mid-1990s in far northeastern Tasmania, where people started discovering devils with large facial lesions that seemed to grow. Initially, that wasn't much of a concern because they'd seen these types of lesions or neoplasias back since the 1970s. However, when animals started dying in large numbers, people really started paying attention that this was some sort of transmissible disease. Shortly thereafter, a genetic study was done that showed that these lesions were actually a clonal transmissible cancer. They were genetically close to identical. So since its discovery, the disease has actually swept across Tasmania in sort of an east to west uh, spread and has now just reached some of the last uninfected populations on the west coast of Tasmania. Cancer is different from pathogens like bacteria or viruses. How has that affected our ability to understand the transmission of this disease in the Tasmanian devil? One of the big challenges has been its large genome size. So studying the genome of a virus is fairly straightforward because viruses like SARS-CoV-2 only are about 28,000 base pairs long. However, the Tasmanian devil genome is 3.2 billion bases, about the size of the human genome. So trying to track the spread of the disease is much more challenging in terms of computational power and genomic sequencing methods, which weren't really available at the scale they are now when the disease was first discovered. So in the study that we're talking about today, you applied a technique that has mainly in the past been used for viruses. What did you have to do differently to get this to work for a transmissible cancer? We did complete genome sequencing of 51 tumors that ended up being in our final analysis. Finding parts of the genome that are measurably evolving, that is evolving at a regular rate or what we would call a molecular clock is pretty challenging. And in the end, we screened about 11,000 genes, which took several months on the computer and found 28 that were measurably evolving in a clock-like fashion. And the reason you want to do that is then you can look at how these are changing 
over time as the disease has spread. And this allows you to then estimate epidemiological parameters like the transmission rate and the proportion of the population that gets infected over time. So this is how you figured out that it came out in the 80s, right? The disease likely originated in the 80s, which is consistent with its discovery in the mid-90s, because when a disease like this first starts taking off in a wildlife population, it might be at fairly low prevalence. And so people don't really notice it until it really takes off. And our epidemiological parameter, which is called R sub E, which is equivalent to the transmission rate, started to peak in our analysis just before the discovery, which makes sense because the disease was rapidly increasing or exponentially increasing in the population. Let's talk a little bit about that transmission rate. That's something that, you know, using this analysis, you were able to show it changed over time. Can you describe that trajectory? We identified two tumor lineages, and in one, it peaked around the mid-1990s, and the other, it peaked around 2000. And the really encouraging results of the study showed that in both major tumor lineages that seem to be across Tasmania now, that the transmission rate declined to just about one at present. And this indicates that the disease has reached some sort of stable state. That is, for every devil that's infected, only one additional devil is infected. And thus, the main conclusion of the paper, which is the disease is transitioning from an epidemic state in which it's exponentially moving across populations to an endemic state where it's just kind of at replacement. Is the kind of analysis you did here able to tell you what has changed? Is something different about the tumor cells? Are the devils different? What's going on? We did find some mutations that seem to explain variation in transmission rates among the different tumor lineages. And these are related to other types of cancer. However, these are candidates for downstream discovery at this point. So they serve as good hypotheses for future research. And what's different about the devils? We have some other studies that show that also the devils seem to be evolving in response to cancer. We see changes in the devil genome that are also seem to be associated with possibly disease resistance. We've also seen spontaneous tumor regression in an increasing number of devils in wild populations. And we show that that might be related to regulatory changes in the, in the devil. So perhaps some genes are up or down regulated in response to the tumor. And we also found a mutation in the tumor that seems to cause the tumor to shrink. So a mutation actually, when turning on a gene, and this gene is implicated in human prostate and colon cancer, the tumor growth actually slows in laboratory studies when we transfect wild-type tumors who don't have this gene with the mutant gene. Does this suggest that the disease will go away or that it will coexist peacefully with Tasmanian devils? People really thought that Tasmanian devils were on their way to extinction. I think this provides us cautious optimism about the future of the Tasmanian devil. This transmissible cancer, which is nearly 100% lethal, has caused a dramatic decline of the species across its entire range in Tasmania. So they're certainly not out of the woods yet. However, because this disease is socially transmitted, early models predicted disease extinction. Because even if you have low densities of individuals, the disease can still be transmitted because devils congregate and bite one another, which is the way the disease is transmitted for purposes of mating or scavenging food. However, 
a growing number of studies from our group has shown through ecological modeling, for example, devils are predicted to persist under most scenarios. Some of those involve lower population densities than where they were initially, but yet the devils will persist. And in a subset of those cases, the tumor will also persist, and we may see sort of endemic dynamics where there's population cycling. This study adds to the growing number of studies that the disease itself also seems to be evolving, perhaps to a lower transmission rate, because there may be evolutionary pressure on the disease to be less lethal to the devils. Are people trying to figure out how to preserve the devils? And will that strategy change with this understanding of the switch from epidemic to endemic? We certainly hope that our new study will help influence conservation strategy. So when devils started declining, there was captive breeding to maximize genetic variability in captive devil populations, which are maintained in wildlife parks and some zoos, and actually in an island offshore from Tasmania called Mariah Island, where there's a free-roaming population of not quite captive devils, but devils were introduced there. These were referred to as captive insurance populations, with the intent that if devils went extinct on the mainland, they could be reintroduced. Or if devil population sizes or inbreeding reached really high levels, they could perhaps be introduced using a technique called genetic rescue to increase genetic diversity in the wild populations. However, our studies taken together are showing that this might not be the best idea introducing captive bred devils into wild devil populations. Because first, the tumor and the devils seem to be evolving towards some sort of coexistence state with devils apparently evolving resistance and tolerance to the disease. Whereas the captive populations are naive to the disease. And so by introducing those captive individuals, if they breed with wild individuals, there may be a phenomenon called outbreeding depression, which could actually dilute the gene pool of good genes that are responding to devil facial tumor disease in wild populations. Introducing captive devils might also increase what's called the force of infection, which is essentially related to the transmission rate of the pathogen through the population. So if you artificially increase the density, this may increase transmission and actually increase selection pressure on the disease to increase in virulence again, if virulence is related to transmission. So yes, we may need to rethink some of our conservation strategies. Now that you have seen how this approach works with a transmissible cancer, can it now be applied to other pathogens with genomes larger than a virus, like bacteria or fungus? Absolutely. One of the things we're excited about is we, through sort of our computational and methodological and other struggles, we have opened the door to use this method, which is typically only used for viruses, to study the epidemiological dynamics of any pathogen. And so that's encouraging because pathogens with larger genomes can now be studied in terms of their epidemiological dynamics and transmission and movement patterns and origins for any species. Often emerging infectious diseases, potentially because of no evolutionary history, they could start off very virulent and then move to a lower level of virulence in natural populations. And a number of factors could play into that, which includes evolution of the pathogen and evolution of the host, which is what we're seeing with Tasmanian devils. You mentioned before that reintroducing these 
naive populations with the aim of conserving the devils might actually be detrimental by increasing the density of their populations. Does that mean that we probably won't see their numbers bounce back? It's hard to say. Our models that predict into the future suggest that devil populations will persist, but at lower densities. What those densities are, we probably need some more information as time goes on to better parameterize the models. So we may not for a while see devils or ever see devils return to the numbers that they were at before the tumor swept across Tasmania. But it's hard to say because if the tumor disappears and devils evolve complete resistance, they could rebound to original levels. Thank you so much, Andrew. Andrew Storfer is a professor in the School of Biological Sciences at Washington State University. You can find a link to his article at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe on the site or anywhere you get your podcast. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.